Good morning. Thank you for choosing to join us through our church website and through Facebook. Uh, again, I will encourage you if you're on the web and have trouble, uh, remember to hit refresh and that sometimes helps. Maybe choosing another browser may help. Again, I'm always grateful for all of those who are working behind the scenes to, to make this happen. Let me call your attention to a few things as we begin. Um, I hope you know that uh, your shepherds and staff are meeting online every week. Uh, we're praying over the church uh, every time we talk about uh, when we can all resume meeting together. And so I want to ask you to continue to pray for that, that we um, will do that at the right time and proceed in the right way. In the meantime, I encourage you to check the bulletin each week. Um, there's uh, online Bible classes. There's a list of ways you can contribute if you are able. Uh, also note tonight, our home devotional, we're continuing studying the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And if you need prayer, uh, the elders and ministers are available anytime. Just reach out to us. We are available. And as we've mentioned before, and I'll share again, uh, Barry England our counselor on staff is available if you need to talk with him. Uh, in addition, Barry has asked that uh, he speak to the church, and he'll do that next Sunday. He's calling his lesson, Help in a Difficult Time, and I know you'll be blessed to hear that message. Today, we're going to begin a new series on what some call the greatest chapter in the Bible. Let me share those who are helping us in our worship today. Eric Carcall will be... Um, opening us with prayer and a scripture reading. Uh, Jim Knight will uh, preside over our communion. And then after our lesson, John Corn will uh, close out our worship and pray over us. Let's worship together. Let's go to our Father in prayer. Holy Father, we... Come before you knowing that you are great and that you are awesome. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you do for us. Lord, we're living in uncertain times, but we know one thing for certain, that you are God and that you are always there and that you will always be there. Father, we pray for the, the sick and the infirmed. Father, we pray for those who are suffering right now. Father, we, we ask your blessing on them and we ask for your healing on the sick. Lord, we pray that you'll be with our families who are among our many shut-ins right now. Lord, we know that uh, as in addition to our, our uh, normal weekly shut-ins, we have so very many people who are, uh, I guess for lack of a better phrase, stuck at home. And Lord, we pray that you will be with them, that you will comfort them, that you will give them the strength and the courage to continue as they are. Lord, we pray that you'll give them an extra measure of patience with each other as they are in close quarters and uh, spending an unexpected amount of time in those close quarters, and that can cause people's tempers to, to get short. Father, we pray that you will alleviate the stress that people have due to this uh, quarantine. Lord, we know that you are the creator of all things, that you are in all things, that you are with us always. And Lord, we, we pray that you'll allow us to use this time together to draw closer to each other and, and Lord, even more importantly, to you. Father, we ask that you would be with uh, the, the people who are out of work as there's a, a, an 
inordinate amount of people that are out of work right now, Father, and that you would comfort them and that uh, some of the aid that is going out that, that would help them with their needs. Lord, for those who still have needs, we pray that those needs would be met by uh, neighbors and family and church members. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, uh, those of us who do not have that need, to look to reach out to those people and to show your love to them. Father, you've put us in this incredible world that you made just for us. And, and we pray that we can appreciate it each and every day. Lord, as, as researchers and scientists and medical professionals are, are seeking desperately for a, a cure to uh, this current um, illness, Lord, we ask that you would be with them, that you would help them find that cure, that it can be delivered to the masses, and that, um, that we can get back to life as we consider it normal as soon as is possible. Father, our students and our children are at home, and they're, they're learning in ways that are new to them, but, um, but with their advanced grasp of technology, Father, it's probably not as difficult as some folks might expect. Lord, we know that our senior class has a great deal of angst and trepidation at feeling, and the feelings they have at the way that the, their senior year has turned out. Father, we pray that you would comfort them. Father, that you would let them know that it's going to be all right that you've got this. Lord, uh, as, as we pr proceed through the quarantine, we pray that you'll give us that measure of patience and just accept that we need to live one day at a time, one week at a time, and, and when you are ready, that you will deliver what's necessary. Father, we pray for uh, our our own souls, Lord, we, we walk our walk daily and, and we often trip and we stumble and we fall and we fail you, Lord. And for those times that we fail you, God, we're sorry. And we thank you for your patience and your understanding with us. We thank you for walking beside us. We thank you for lifting us up, for dusting us off and walking on beside us and even carrying us through those times that we need it. Father, we love you and we praise your name. Father, as we go through this worship, we pray that your name above all will be exalted. Father, we pray that you will hear our singing and our prayers and our worship and that it will be holy and acceptable to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Most of all, Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and for the sacrifice that you and he made on the cross when you allowed him to be beaten and whipped and, and crucified, spat upon, and insulted, Lord, and, and we pray that we can live our lives in a way that's worthy of that sacrifice, that we can live in a manner that reflects the love that was shown that day on the cross to the world around us, and that we can be the city on the hill that you ask us, that you call us to be, that we can be the light to the world. Father, we thank you so much for everything you do for us, and it's in Jesus' most precious name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go.
Till on that cross as Jesus died 
Good morning. To all of you who are being good by sheltering in place, by wearing your mask, by keeping your distance at Kroger and Lowe's, and by not hoarding toilet paper or hand sanitizer, uh, I have a question for you this morning. How does it feel to be an eyewitness to history? We tend to think that truly historical events don't come along very often, and that the people who get to witness them firsthand should consider it an honor. The author of Hebrews, writing to Christians 30 or 40 years after the events that Randy's been teaching us about for the last few weeks, certainly tries to make that point to his audience. In the 11th chapter, he goes through a long list of God's people who lived faithful lives, performed mighty works, endured terrible hardships while waiting for the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. Maybe a hundred generations passed from Abraham to Jesus. The Hebrew writer calls them a cloud of witnesses. And he says the world was not worthy of them. But none of them lived to see the promise come true. That honor of being an eyewitness to the fulfillment of the promise fell to the generation that was the Hebrew writer's audience. And as he says in verse 40 of that 11th chapter, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. I'm sure that viewed from the relative safety of 30 or 40 years after the fact, the status of being an eyewitness to the events of the last week of Jesus' ministry and his crucifixion did feel like an honor. But while it was happening, it was a different story. The fact is that being an eyewitness to life-changing historical events is often disruptive and confusing and scary and sometimes downright terrifying. So it is for us today. So it was back then for that small group of Jesus' followers. Over a period of a few days, the world they thought they knew collapsed and their lives were turned upside down. When I look back on all the historic events that God's people endured over the, in the past, a couple of lessons stand out to me. First, don't give up. Don't despair. Even though we can't always see the end, nothing is so bad that God can't bring some good from it for those who love him, as we're told in Romans. God is faithful, and we ought to try to be too. And then, once the crisis has passed, remember, remember how God has delivered you, and more importantly, pass it on. 
When Israel was delivered out of Egypt, they were given a memorial of the Passover and told to celebrate it every year. And then God tells them, in the days to come, when your son asks, what does this mean? You be sure to tell him the story. We have a memorial that we are about to observe. It was established to remember those events that happened in Jerusalem during the reign of Tiberius Caesar almost a hundred generations ago when Jesus gave his body and shed his blood to save us. So, just like the Israelites long ago, when your children ask, what does this mean? You be sure to tell them the story. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for a new day. We thank you for all the blessings that go along with it. We thank you for your care over us, even in this time of uncertainty. Father, we come now to celebrate this memorial. We pray now that we will take this bread, the symbol of Christ's body that was broken on the cross for us, and take it in a manner that would be pleasing, examining ourselves. We ask you to accept this offering and forgive us of our sins. In Christ's name, amen. Father, now we take this cup, which symbolizes Christ's blood, the blood that was shed for us, the blood that was necessary to cleanse us of our sins. Father, we know that this sacrifice is the embodiment of the gospel. We ask that we take of this cup, examining ourselves, and in the process, proclaim your death until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen.
<clears throat> Bob Sheffield played professional hockey in Canada. In his book, Temptations Men's Face, Tom Einzeman relates Bob's story. Bob was tough. That's why he was good at hockey. He loved to fight both on and off the ice. But once after a barroom brawl, he found himself in jail and with a criminal record. Well, years later, Bob and his wife became Christians and then accepted a temporary mission to the U.S., but he had to apply for immigration status. And so when they found out he had a criminal record, it was denied. He tried everything he could to get past it. Nothing helped. So he took a long shot, and he applied in Canada for what the Canadians call the Queen's Pardon. Following a thorough investigation, the pardon was granted, and Bob Sheffield received the following notice in the mail. Whereas we've since been implored on behalf of the said Robert Jones Sheffield to extend a pardon to him in respect to the convictions against him, and whereas the Solicitor General here submitted a report to us, now know ye therefore, having taken these things into consideration, that we are willing to extend the royal clemency on Robert Sheffield. We have pardoned, remitted, and released him of every penalty to which he was liable in pursuance thereof. And from the moment he received that in the mail, whenever Bob was asked if he had a criminal record, he could honestly say no. Why? Because Bob had received the Queen's pardon. Today we're going to begin looking at a similar announcement, actually the same announcement that every child of God has received, as it were, in the mail. It's a letter. It's from the book of Romans, but the book of Romans really is a letter. And the king's pardon is declared in the opening verse of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 begins with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. So as you turn your Bibles to Romans 8, I want you to know that this has been called the greatest chapter of the whole Bible. Bible scholars, commentators, ministers, so many think this is where it's at. One man wrote this, If the Bible were a cluster of precious jewels, the book of Romans would be the diamond in the center of the cluster, and chapter 8 would be the very tip of the diamond. I've called this study Great Chapter 8 because if you're talking about the big things that really matter in your walk with the Lord, like basic Bible theology, hope of heaven, walking in the Spirit, being saved from the power of sin. It's all right here in Romans chapter 8. So I want to begin by reading the first four verses. You can read along in your Bible. If you've got the, the bulletin outline, it's printed there as well. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Romans chapter 8 begins, There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who were in Christ Jesus. And anytime you're reading the word therefore, you need to ask, what is it therefore? So we need to look back and say, well, what preceded this statement? We won't go back and read all of chapters 1 through 7 of Romans, but Paul makes the case in this first part of the book that mankind has a sin problem. I'll put just a few on the screen. Chapters 1 through 7, we learn that we are sinful. There's none righteous, not even one, chapter 3, verse 10. And we have no excuse, chapter 2, verse 1. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, chapter 3, 23. The wages of sin is death, chapter 6, 23. And our propensity to sin makes us wretched. That's the word he uses in chapter 7, verse 24. In fact, this whole section of Romans, chapter 7, ends asking the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? Even the natural mind of mankind demands there be payment for wrongs. That's why the question is asked, who will deliver me from this? Muhammad Ali summed up this perspective in an interview he gave with Reader's Digest. He said this, one day we're all going to die, and God is going to be the one to judge our good deeds and bad deeds. And if the bad deeds outweigh the good, you go to hell. If the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. That is a typical way that so many people think about God and eternity. Even some Christians believe that way. But they don't get that from the Bible. A magazine article told about a 67-year-old man named Bob. I'm sorry, Bill. Bill had donated 100 pints of blood in his lifetime. And no doubt many people owed their health, if not their life, to his donation, to his generosity. When asked why he did it, here was his answer. When the final whistle blows and God asks me, what did you do? I'll just say, well, I gave 100 pints of blood. And then Bill added with a laugh, that ought to get me in. See, we have this internal, innate sense of justice. If you do wrong, you should pay for it. Or at least do enough good to make up for the wrong that you did, to make it right. Paul wrote in this letter, especially in chapter 7, very candidly about his own struggles. He said in chapter 7, 15, for I do, not do, for I do what I do not want, but I do the very thing I hate. So why then, in, in chapter 8, would he open saying there is no condemnation? Does God still love us even though we struggle with sin? And how does that work? Well, if you want the answer to these questions, then you need to read into Romans chapter 8, because that's what makes this chapter so great. And Paul begins with a very surprising but yet powerful statement. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So following chapters 1 through 6, talking about our sin problem, and chapter 7, Paul admitting his own struggle with sin, you would think what would follow next is something far different, like you better get ready for the condemnation that's coming. Or how are we going to deal with the condemnation, the condemnation that's coming? But that's not what he says. He says there's no condemnation. Talk about good news. And this should come as a huge relief for every Christian because it changes everything. We don't have to live a life of guilt for our sin. 
we get to live in the grace of God. And then verses 2 through 4 kind of explain how this happens. It mentions what happens, how it happens, and why it happens. So that's going to be our outline as we go through the text. So explanation number one, it, an, it answers the question, what? What happens here? And the word to look for is the word for. You might want to circle that. There is no condemnation, he says, and in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For, that's the word in the English Standard Version. The New International Version says because through Jesus Christ. The New Living Translation says because you belong to him. But that word is important. That's why it happened. Jesus set you free from guilt and death that's caused by sin. And we get to live in grace instead. So Paul explains this no condemnation begins with life in Jesus. And the reason there's no condemnation is because what he says here, Jesus has set us free. We can't do it on our own. We try, but we come up short. You can never donate enough blood. You can never do enough good to outweigh your bad. There is no condemnation because Jesus has the power to set us free. Yet for that to happen, and this is critical, we have to believe this. We have to believe what the Bible is saying. We have to believe what God's message is here. To accept his word, there is no condemnation. You've heard me use the phrase, get people in the word and get the word in people. This is the word that we need inside of us. This is the truth of scriptural. But we've got to be honest about this. This is hard. This is sometimes hard for us to get past, to believe that there is no condemnation. There is something within us, because we know our past, we know our mistakes, we're reminded of that, that we think, no condemnation, really? Is that really what it means? Surely there's some condemnation, but none at all. Sometimes we call this forgiving ourselves. I know God's forgiven me, but... I have a hard time forgiving myself. A newspaper reported the story about a man who turned himself into the police for a murder that he committed seven years before. It was an unsolved crime. The police had hit a dead end until he showed up and confessed to the whole thing. An officer explained it this way. He said the man said he wanted to come clean and he wanted to clear his conscience now, the reality of eternal condemnation has a way of motivating people. Even if you think in this life, maybe you're getting away with it. He wanted to come clean with his crime. He couldn't live with himself anymore. And all of us struggle with our past. We think about the things that we've done, and we just can't get past them sometimes. Business Insider explained that ever since 1811, the U.S. Treasury has maintained what they have come to call the Conscience Fund. A donor in 1811 sent $5 to the Treasury. Then it was under the Madison administration. That fund was authorized in 1950. It continues to receive money from American citizens even today. For one American, it was just about sending nine cents to the U.S. Treasury. For another, it was $155,000 most of them 
or anonymous. Sometimes they come with a note explaining their money. One said this, please accept the money enclosed for two postage stamps that I reused. Another wrote, this check is for $1,300. It's to make restitution for the tools, leave days, and other things I stole while I was in the Navy. Another confessed to taking two metal office dividers and said, I ask for your forgiveness and say I'm extremely sorry for this rotten act. May God and you forgive me. One man sent, sent a check for $100 with this note. I just have not been able to sleep. So here's $100. If I still can't sleep, I'm going to send you the rest. Probably not true repentance. Sources are reluctant to say exactly how much in total has been contributed to this fund through the years. A New York Times article printed years ago put the value at $5.7 million. $5.7 million, that is a lot of guilt because guilt is a tough thing to deal with. Now, sometimes guilt is good. The Holy Spirit will convict you of your wrongdoing, and that can be a good guilt because you are guilty, and you need to make it right. You need to make, it, uh, make restitution. You need to ask for forgiveness with God and with others. But there's also bad guilt, and that's when Satan holds something over your head that God has already forgiven you. Other people have already forgiven you. But Satan keeps reminding you. It's one of his oldest ploys. But the challenge is this, how do we move from guilt to grace? How do we believe what Paul is writing here, that there's no condemnation? That's what he's teaching in this whole first section. We need to remember that guilt is one of Satan's strongest weapons, and he loves to use it against us. He'll do whatever he can to cause us to question our forgiveness, to doubt in God's goodness and ability to be able to say, I won't hold that against you anymore. To doubt our salvation. Or maybe feel like we've got to be penalized even in this life and fade in the background when it comes to telling other people about how Jesus Christ washed my sins away. John wrote a short but very important truth in 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you were a follower of Jesus, maybe we should take note of how Jesus handled Satan and say, get behind me and just remind him that he doesn't have the power anymore. If you've got the Holy Spirit living in you, Satan can no longer hold something over your head that God has forgiven you, that Jesus' blood has washed clean. Maybe you've seen the meme that says the next time Satan reminds you of your past, you need to remind him of his future. But notice a key qualifier in verse 2. You must be in Christ. In Christ seems, in my opinion, to be one of Paul's favorite phrases because he uses it often. You are set free in Christ. You don't earn no condemnation. It's a gift. It's a gift of being in Christ it's a gift when you're in the family of God. It's a gift when you're walking with him. It's a gift when you are chosen to be one of his heirs. Well, then in verse 3, he answers the second question, and that is how. How it happened. And again, notice a key word, and it's the same word, for. 
Because again, he helps us to understand how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse three, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That's how we were set free, through Jesus coming to earth to take care of our sin problem. So Paul then paraphrases and says there's no condemnation because of what God accomplished through his son at Calvary. He became our sacrifice. He became our representation, our sin. Look at the truth in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sin is the problem. Since the beginning of mankind, it's always been the problem. It will always be the problem. God gave the law in the Old Testament to be a guide of how to avoid sin. But the law is good. The law is a gift from God. So the problem is not the law. The problem was us. It's sin. But neither could the law help us to overcome sin. So mankind was condemned in our sin. And God beat the power of sin by sending Jesus in the flesh. He defeated the power of sin and death and took away the sting. We talked about that last week. I was thinking how, how best to illustrate this. Maybe you've heard the story about the family years ago that was traveling on vacation in a station wagon. Now, if you're a young person, you don't know what a station wagon is. It's really just an SUV. We just renamed them and jacked them up a bit. But it's the same thing. They were in their station wagon when a bumblebee came inside. And one of the little boys was deathly allergic to bumblebee stings. In fact, just a few months earlier, he had such a bad reaction, had to be hospitalized. And the doctors warned him to be very careful because it could be very tragic if he were ever to be stung again. So when the bee came into the wagon, the boy just became hysterical, jumped out of his seat, jumped into the back of the station wagon. Well, the father, just as quick as he could, he was driving, pulled the station wagon over. And then he, when he did, he looked around and the bee buzzed near him and he grabbed it with his hands. And everybody in the station wagon was watching. The father had caught the bee And then everybody noticing the father grimacing. And then he opened his hand, and the bee flew away. But as it flew away, the little boy became hysterical again. But the father said, no, 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 it's okay. And he showed the hand where it was beginning to swell. And he noticed it, look, here, the stinger is right here. He can't hurt you now. All he can do is fly around and buzz. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, because of this, whenever a child of God dies, death is not the end. The sting has been taken away. It's merely a, a comma in the sentence of life. Jesus beats sin and guilt and all that comes with it by coming to earth and paying for our sins. Well, let's look at the rest of verse three and four and answer the question, why? Why did this happen? 
Verse 3, it ends saying, He condemns him in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So again, notice the phrase, in order that. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, in our next lesson in chapter 8, we're going to talk more about the indwelling spirit. But we need to kind of go back in time for a moment. What is meant by the requirement of the law? He mentions that phrase here. Because sometimes when we read the word law, we immediately think of the Ten Commandments. In the Exodus class that I'm a part of, we've recently studied where God gave the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. You remember that. It was needed for a number of reasons. First, these children of God, I mean, the children of Israel, had lived in a pagan land for 400 years as slaves. They'd be like you and me tracing our ancestry back to the 1600s and trying to replicate the way they lived and the way they believed and the way they worshiped God. They needed teaching about who God was and what God expected of them and how to live in harmony with one another. God is a holy God, and he expects his people to live in his holy ways. But the Bible also refers to law in a broader sense than just the Ten Commandments. In fact, before chapter 8 in chapter 7 of Romans, Paul says, I agree with the law that it is good. He says, I delight in the law of God. He says, the law was holy. He says, I serve the law of God. Paul also mentions the law of marriage. He talks about the law of sin and death. He talks about our sinful passions are aroused by the law. See, sometimes when we read the word law, we discount that Old Testament law and think, well, that's only about the rules, the thou shalt and the thou shalt not. But the law was given to Israel so they could know who God was. In the very context of giving them the law, God identifies himself as being a loving, kind, and compassionate, and forgiving God. A God of peace. That is who he is. And that's how he wanted his people to know him. And God wants his people to be a reflection of him. So God gave them the law. But even those who try their best to keep the law, they can keep it all. Last week in our home devotional, we, we were reminded of what the Bible says about David. You know, King David is called in the Bible a man after God's own heart. That doesn't mean he always got it right. In fact, the Bible tells us how he got it wrong. And David tried to hide his sin. You remember the deceit, the murder, the adultery. It's one after another. And David was in denial for a while. Eventually, his guilt got to him. Recovery programs have a saying, you're only as sick as your secrets. That's true. And David knew it was true. In Psalm 32, David gives us a peek into this heart. He tells us when he changed. He's talking to God, Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fervent heat of the summer. 
Verse five, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Note the wording here. Not just forgave my sin, but forgave the guilt of my sin. I looked up that Hebrew word there, guilt, and it's translated iniquity or guilt or punishment for iniquity. See, the good news of Jesus Christ is your sin, he died for it. He rose again. He came out of the grave. He showed us that we can have a righteous life by living for him. Our hope is in him. See, the goal of the law is that we would be righteous, that we would keep his covenant with him and live godly lives on earth. And his spirit would help us to do that. But here's the point. God forgave the guilt of my sin. That's another one of those we need to believe it, where the word needs to get in us that God forgave the guilt of my sin. So you remember that the next time Satan comes ringing that bell of guilt to know it's hollow, it means nothing. We've got to put Satan in his place. When we've been baptized into Jesus Christ and then we confess our shortcomings, the Lord wipes our slate clean. See, the purpose of no condemnation is not just to forgive us of our past sins, not just make us feel good or to be happy. The end goal of no condemnation is for us to become more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. Being a Christian is not a free pass to say whatever you want or, or do whatever you want. It means you're going to say, I'm going to be different. I'm going to be distinct because now God's Holy Spirit is living within me. And I'm a completely committed follower of Jesus. Look at Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We don't just keep on sinning so that God's grace will abound. We make it our goal to live a different life. We do our best to be like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to respond like Jesus, to love like Jesus. See, some people think, and it's easy to think this way, well, that's God's job to forgive. I mean, he's the Savior. I mean, that's what he does. He forgives sins. Well, yes, he does. But we're going to be careful with thinking that way. It reminds me of the type of attitude. Remember the movie Love Story? Eric Siegel wrote, maybe you remember this line, love means never having to say you're sorry. Well, with all due respect to Ali McGraw and Ryan O'Neill, they got it wrong. The Bible does say love covers a multitude of sins, if you love someone, you'll admit when you mess up. That's part of loving them. See, if you choose to get married, you need to be totally committed to that person. You love that person with their whole heart. And the more deeply you love them, the more you don't want to wrong them. You want to honor them and respect them. Is that not why Paul 
compared being marriage to Christ's relationship with the church. Is that not how it is when you become a Christ follower? Why would you want to do something, live in a way, participate, say something that is in direct opposition to the life Jesus is calling you to? God's word is not just about information. It's about transformation. And that's when you believe what the word says and it becomes a part of you. Look at the screen. There's the phrase, there is no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. Now, if we were all meeting here together, I'd want us to say this together in unison because it, it does us good to, to say it out loud. But we're not all here together. You're watching this on a screen. But I still want you to say it with me. So if you will, it's right there on the screen. Just read along with me. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I want to challenge you. I want you to think about the times when you have disappointed God. For some of you, that's all I have to say, and you're there. It's just right there in the back of your mind, and it quickly comes to the forefront. But think of the times when you knew to do right, and you didn't choose right. Think of the times where, instead of doing the right thing, you rebelled. I want you to take a moment and think of your besetting sin. What is it that you just can't get past, that keeps tripping you up? Maybe only you and God know about Give you just a moment to think about that. Now think about the times when you've repented. When you've come clean to God and you say, God, I want to I make choices that honor you. I want to live for you. I'm going to do what you say is right, not what I want to do or I feel is right. Or thank you for not holding my sins against me. The Bible says you forgave the guilt of my sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to close by inviting you to respond personally, privately, maybe it's between you and God. I hope you will have that moment with him to receive his forgiveness as a Christian. But you confess and you let your guilt be forgiven. But if you need to talk with an elder or a minister, we are available. Or if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, that phrase used here, into Christ. We have the baptism ready, and we'll gladly help you with that. John? Wow, Randy. What a marvelous lesson on the book of Romans. I've often said to people in my life that I found God in the book of Romans. 
I've also said to people, if I was ever lost on a desert isle, never had anything else but one piece of the Bible, if I could just get the book of Romans, that I could find God, I could live forever. I hope you all have appreciated this lesson. I hope you all take to heart the blessing and the lack of condemnation that we have, as we're talked about in Romans. For those of you who might not be regular members, I'm John Corn, one of the elders at West 7th, and I need a hug. But I haven't been able to find Ryan Schmidt anywhere in the building this morning. I need a haircut. But Sue Fox isn't here either. I need to hear your live voices raised in song. Oh, how we miss each other. We're so glad you've attended, viewed, or whatever we call this new norm with us this morning. How much more we look forward to the day that we'll all be here together. We do have a few announcements. We extend our sympathy to Jenny Johnson and her family on the death of her mother, Carol Childers. She passed away April 12th. Our sympathy to Philip Young Sr. and the whole Young family on the death of his mother, Frances Young. She passed away April 13th. And our sympathy goes out to Shirley Stone and family on the death of her sister-in-law, Ann Carlisle. We have happy things going on, too. We have the wonderful birth of the Marlin great-great-grandchild. We have people who are going about their lives. We have people who are embracing our Lord in spite of what they see around them. I found an Internet quote this week. I added a few personal embellishments to it. When doctors don't have medicines or face masks, or shields, or gowns. When leaders don't have answers, or give ones that make sense, or fight over who's control. When the military doesn't have weapons to fight an unseen army of microbes. When governments are in disarray. When people panic over napkins and paper towels, and yes, even toilet paper. There's one name, one answer, higher than any other name that can restore, revive, renew, and rebuild this broken world. And that name is Jesus. In Mark, fourth chapter, we're told he got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down and it was completely calm. Listen to him now. He will calm down your life too. In our scripture today from Joshua is on the wall in my house, and every time we go and come from the garage, we pass by this. And many times when I go to work, used to go to work in the mornings, I would look at it and smile and think, I can make it through work. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Psalm 41, he says, Be still and know that I am God. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The social scientists tell us that with every great event in history, there's great societal change that is imprinted on us all. Flying will never again be the enjoyable, fun, relaxing mode of transportation we used to know before 9-11. And our military has been at war for 19 long years since. Now we've lost the spring. Schools and proms are canceled. Sports are gone. We can't attend anything. And especially near our hearts, no church services together. We haven't held our, grand, our children and grandchildren in over a month. Who in our lifetime could ever have thought this was possible? But these things are possible in an imperfect world. Polio was the scourge of my young childhood. That nightmare virus could be caught from touching the wrong water. I still remember the day the guys in white coats showed up at my elementary school and gave out sugar cubes soaked in the vaccine that effectively ended that virus in the United States. This time, they'll probably be dressed in green. And this time, too, she'll pass. The constant throughout history, in spite of virus, pestilence, wars, and the failings of man is the love of our God and the salvation given freely by Jesus Christ with no condemnation. Hold fast to him and we'll get through this. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the fact that regardless of what happens in our lives, we know that all we have to do is reach out and touch your cloak and know that you are with us. We ask you, dear Lord, that you would calm our hearts, that you would help us make good decisions, that you would help us take this opportunity to show you to the rest of the world. Help us to see the fact that the rest of the world has actually turned to you in their time of need as an opportunity to say to them, God was here all along. We ask that you would be with our families. Help keep us safe. Help us make good decisions. Help us to live and work for you. Help us to listen to the authorities and make things better in this world. We thank you, dear son. We thank you, God, for your son, Jesus. Our salvation and the propitiation for our sins. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.